McAvoy is a female-founded, family-owned 550-acre farm in Petaluma, California, known for the world's best estate-produced extra virgin olive oil. Contrary to popular belief, extra virgin olive oil is great for cooking. In fact, I use it almost daily for both salads and cooked meals. It's easily incorporated into almost any dish or cuisine, adding new flavors and healthy polyphenols and monounsaturated fats. The smoke point for extra virgin olive oil averages around 405 degrees Fahrenheit and is high enough for most cooking methods. It also has high oxidative stability, meaning that it contains compounds that prevent the oil from deteriorating when exposed to heat during the cooking process. If you're looking to cook with a healthy oil and want the flavors of your food to shine through, McAvoy's Extra Virgin Cooking Olive Oil is a perfect choice. Oh, and we have a special discount just for you, our listener. Use code SPEAKING15 and you'll get 15% off your order. How many times have you heard the phrase, you look so much like someone I know? I hear it all the time, but I rarely think about that statement much after it's said. Sometimes I wonder if I saw the person they are referring to, would I also think they look like me, or not at all. And that is usually the extent of the energy or thought I give to it. For Andre Brown, a 21-year-old college student at the borough of Manhattan Community College, this one statement changed his life forever. I thought about my life now, how it's changing. Because I had handcuffs on me and I didn't know when the next time these handcuffs would be taken off, especially with the charges of two attempted murders. And I sat there and I thought and I thought and I thought for hours they kept me into the bullpen. You're listening to Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. At approximately 5.30 p.m. on January 15, 1999, a Friday evening, two teenage boys were shot by a masked gunman in the Bronx. The horrific crime took place on Allerton Avenue between Britton Street and Nolanville Avenue. Wearing a mask, the gunman was not identifiable by bystanders. He shot O'Neill Virgo, and then he continued to chase after the other teenage boy, Sean Nicholson, down the street. While chasing Sean, and for reasons we will never know, the shooter removed his face mask while running with a gun in his right hand. Now, the assailant could be seen by witnesses, people who were commuting home during rush hour. So when a woman, Stephanie Telfer, came forward and said she was stuck in traffic at the time of the shootings and had seen the shooter, it seemed plausible. She identified Andre as the shooter in the attempted murders. Andre was convicted of two counts of attempted murder and sentenced to 40 years in prison, but has always claimed he is innocent. We asked Andre what college life was like for him before he got caught up in this crime. College was awesome. I mean, being in BMCC, it changed my life. Um, I remember the first time going 
to the school itself and seeing the escalator there and it was a party. It was a party right there on the escalator before classes. So I enjoyed the difference. And what I mean by the difference is coming from the Bronx, you see a lot of violence and coming straight to Chamber Street now in Manhattan, it was a change of atmosphere for me. It was the abnormal, I want to call it, because the normal every day was the street activities, seeing, you know, the hustlers or seeing the crack addicts or seeing just individual school children playing hooky, trying to go to a um, hooky party or something like that, trying to ditch school while their parents were not home. So going to college was just a different, different thing for me. It was just it enlightened me. It just felt invigorating to my spirit. That all drastically changed when one woman said she witnessed Andre shooting two teenagers in the Bronx. So I had just finished my first semester of college. Um, as I finished my first semester, I should say I hadn't finished my first semester. I was at the ending of my first semester of college, about to start into my second year of college, when I wanna say about three officers came to my girlfriend's apartment, Desiree. And when they came to her apartment, they asked for me. They said, is Andre home? And she immediately said, no. They, they entered the apartment without permission. Um, they looked around, looked for me a bit, and then they left the card and said, if Andre comes, please have him contact us. And then you did? And I did. Immediately when I came home that morning, I had just went to the store. I had just missed the officers maybe about 10 minutes out because I had went to get my girlfriend and I some breakfast at the local luncheonette. And um, when I went there, Upon coming back with the breakfast, she told me what had happened. So I immediately um, reached out to my mom who was on Gun Hill Road. And unbeknownst to me, my mom told me that they had just visited her house as well, which was my grandmother, um, Almira's apartment, I should say house, over there on Gun Hill Road. So they had just left over there, the premises there, and same questions. They wanted to know where I was at and if I was available to be spoken to. Andre had no reason to worry and no reason to not answer the detective's questions. So he willingly went in, along with his attorney, to speak to the detectives. Martin Fisher was an old family attorney and upon the officers, officer, I should say Detective Rupert Shedd and his colleagues attending the gun, um, my, grandmother's house, going to my grandmother's house, immediately I contacted him because my mother thought it would be best. So when we contacted him, he told me to come down to the Supreme Court in the Bronx because inside of the Supreme Court building is a law library. And we sat there and we contacted the detectives from that um, secluded area there. On that day, they said, we don't need Andre to come in. We just wanted to have a couple of words with him just to see where he was, his whereabouts, and also did he know anything of it. So 
Martin asked them, well, is there anything that you would like for me to ask him at this time? He's sitting right here next to me. They said, no, you know, we don't need him for anything at all. You know, we were just wondering. And if we do need him, we'll contact you. And they took Martin Fisher's number. Well, I didn't go to speak to them voluntarily. I went with an attorney. However, in hindsight, do I regret it? Yes. I want to say yes, because I don't know the possibilities had he went in by himself and did the interview and later came and told me about what their thoughts was. I don't know what my action would have been at that time. So the regret would be not the unknown for me, you know, the unknown of the possibilities of maybe having enough time to say goodbye to all my loved ones, you know, allowing certain people to know what, what was going on. At that time, I didn't. I only had maybe about a day span before I immediately went in on the Wednesday to go and see them. We asked Andre, at what point did he realize that things were going awry? the minute they put the handcuffs on me. On the morning that Martin Fisher called me, he said, Andre, the police, which I spoke to them, he should spoke to them, I should say, on the Monday afternoon in the Supreme Court building. He contacted me Tuesday night, very late, like at around maybe 10 o'clock at night, and indicated to me, Andre, listen, um, Detective Rupachet contacted me earlier in the day. I was a little bit busy. I couldn't reach out to you, but he wants you to come down to the precinct in the morning with me. And you don't have to worry about anything. You're just going in for questions and you'll be leaving with me. That morning, I was prepared to go in and answer a few questions. I brought my mom with me. I brought my girlfriend Desiree with me at the time. And I thought it was going to be a normal day. I thought that I would be going in, telling them that I had nothing to do with this crime and that they would be releasing me. Instead, the total opposite happened. I walked in, I sat outside of any questioning areas and they took um, Martin into a room and engaged with him. When they engaged with Martin, it was a good 20 minutes that he spoke to them. I was outside of any areas and what occurred was a detective started to speak to me and he said to me, he said, Andre, do you know who I am? And I said, no. I said, I don't know who you are. And he said, I came to the hospital to see you. And I said, I don't remember you. And he said, do you remember when you got shot? And I said, absolutely. And I showed him my scar. And upon showing him the scar, he said, wow, they almost took your leg off. I said, yeah, that's why I walked in here confidently knowing that I had nothing to do with this crime. He spoke to me for a while and he said, you should be leaving out of here. And that's exactly what I thought that I would be leaving out of there. Martin came out and told me, Andre, they're keeping you. And I looked at him and I shook my head and I said, what? What do you mean they're keeping me? And he said, well, Andre, they believe that you had something to do with the crime. One of the complaining witnesses identified you and they are going to keep you. However, I specifically told them and expressed 
for them not to question you other than pedigree matters. And that's what they did. But I became irate. I was yelling, you know, one of the officers grabbed my arm. I'm yelling at my attorney. How could you let this happen to me? My mom starts to um, shed tears. My girlfriend is there. She's shedding tears and everybody now is questioning what's going on. Even myself at the time, I don't know what's going on. The only thing I know is that officers now are wrestling with me to put handcuffs on me and put me into a holding cell. Meditation has truly helped me in so many aspects of my life. From reducing anxiety, to clearing my mind, managing my never-ending to-do list, to helping me sleep. No matter what you're feeling, tap into the Women's Meditation Network and access quick, effective, guided meditations for whatever you need in the moment. If you're anything like me and deal with imposter syndrome or just need a little confidence boost to start your day, I highly recommend their morning meditations for women. I ended and started my day with a quick 10-minute meditation titled An Invitation to Envision Confidence Morning Meditation. It reminds me to tackle my day with confidence and not allow imposter syndrome to seep in at the most inopportune times, as it always seems to do. The Women's Meditation Network includes 11 different podcasts of their guided meditations and music tracks. So go follow Morning Meditation for Women now wherever you listen to podcasts and start listening for free today. Just search Morning Meditation for Women on your favorite podcast app and follow. Or you can visit www.womensmeditationnetwork.com. More calm, better sleep, and less anxiety are all at your fingertips for free. The next thing I know, um, I was sitting in a holding cell for hours. Um, after the yelling ceased because nobody wanted to hear it anymore, um, I was the only one hearing myself saying that I had nothing to do with this crime. Um, I sat there and I thought, I thought about my life now, how it's changing. Because I had handcuffs on me and I didn't know when the next time these handcuffs would be taken off. Especially with the charges of two attempted murders. And I sat there and I thought and I thought and I thought for hours they kept me into the bullpen. Eventually, um, one of the officers, Detective Rupert said, Andre, we're transporting you to the 48th precinct. And they brought me down, him and I believe it was another detective named Madeline. I forget her last name at this time, but I do remember her first name. And he said, Madeline, um, escort Andre, hold on to one of his arms because we don't know what he will do. And they escorted me into uh, an unmarked police vehicle and transported me to the 48th precinct. At the time we had been at the 49th precinct, which is a precinct on Pelham Parkway. Um, when I got to the 48th precinct, I should say upon the drive to the 48th precinct, I kept telling the officers I had nothing to do with this. They got the wrong guy. You know, I indicated to them, why are we going to the 48th precinct? Why am I not going home? I, I have, 
told you everything I know. And they said, Andre, you're going to jail. They brought me to the 48th precinct and threw me in another holding cell. At the 48th precinct, you had more violent officers than the 49th precinct. Um, a lot of those officers came into the um, holding pen because they wanted to see who I was. Um, I believe some of them had been on a warrant task force. So because a warrant had been issued for me, um, they wanted to actually see me in person. They had only seen the poster itself. When I went after they viewed me, you know, they one of them slapped me in the back of the head and, you know, they mushed me a couple of times and they were laughing to each other and say, yeah, you got your guy, you got your collar. Um, I sat there, you know, tears running down my eyes, knowing that I had nothing to do with this. And then Detective Rubichette said, you'll be coming, you'll be going into a lineup. And they put me in a lineup from that point on. Stephanie was called in to identify the shooter from the lineup, and she did. She identified Andre. And it got worse. One of the teenagers who was shot that day said he looked back and got a look at his shooter, and he also identified Andre. I should tell you about the course of the lineup first, instead of what happened after the lineup. So during the course of the lineup, they put fillers in a couple of individuals who were of light complexion tone like myself, and a couple who weren't. Um, some of them had different haircuts from myself, others had similar type haircuts, and then what they did was they put me in a, a, a lineup. They had a witness named Stephanie Telfer who indicated that she saw me run by her vehicle to shoot one of the guys who was Sean Nicholson, um, the complainant witness who actually said he saw me as well. Um, Stephanie Telfer said at the time of the crime itself, two people ran past her car. The first guy ran past her car very fast. And then the second guy ran past her vehicle and showed a, a, a firearm running by her car window and turned left on Olinville and Britain Street. She was the person who came to the lineup that night. The lineup was held at around six o'clock that night. Um, from my understanding, because I requested my attorney, my attorney should have been there, but I was not afforded him or the opportunity to call him. So they proceeded with the lineup. Stephanie Telfer um, said that she pointed me out of the lineup, that she knew me from the neighborhood and she believed I was the culprit that brandished the firearm and also shot the individual who was shot. And from that point on, my life just turned totally different. But could Stephanie's recollection be trusted? She made many statements that were inconsistent with the facts. For one, where she claimed she witnessed the crime was not the actual location where the crime had occurred. She also said she was at a traffic light, but there is no traffic light at that location. There is only a stop sign. What's important to know about Stephanie Telfer is that 
Stephanie was not the normal identifying witness. She, first of all, after a thorough investigation by my attorneys, we understood a few things about Stephanie. Number one, she had a delay in her identification. And the delay was she saw a reward um, for my bounty. And that's very important to know because it was after that that she contacted the police. I should say after that is when she came forward with the information. The police had contacted her because she had an attack, which is called an agina attack. And this agina attack allowed her to be, end up in the hospital. It's also very important to know that the location itself of the crime that occurred was on Britain and Olinville Avenue. And that is where she said she saw the crime itself because she had been caught in traffic. On Britain Street, there are only stop signs there. So she could never have been caught at a red light as she indicated to the police. There's a stop and go system there because of the school children. The ambulance itself, after she had the agina attack, picked her up on Arnau Avenue. Arnau Avenue is almost I want to say a half a train stop away from the crime itself. So for her to indicate that she saw the crime and be placed where she was placed, we understand that what she said was a lie. She fabricated her story. And we understand now through further investigation that Chantel Higgins and Miss Stephanie Telfer were also good colleagues. So we believe that they concocted the story together. We do not um, have proof because nobody has ever brought this forward. We have never been able to question um, Ms. Telfer um, through our investigators or through our attorneys because both judges, um, Judge Bamberger wouldn't allow it as well as Judge Lewis said that it would not be beneficial for our investigators to go and interview her because we did not want to um, rehash old things. But I believe to this day would have been very beneficial. My attorneys believe it would have been very beneficial to show her side by side in juxtaposition the photos and allow her to see you know, that she made a misidentification. So it's very important to understand Mrs. Telfer's role in my 23-year incarceration and wrongful conviction because the district attorney heavily relied upon her testimony. It should also be known that Stephanie Telfer was never actually able to physically testify in front of a jury. There was a cirrhosis, um, psoriasis hearing, and during the psoriasis hearing, her grand jury testimony was allowed into evidence. 
That grand jury testimony indicated just what I told you, that an individual passed her car, the first individual, second individual brandished a firearm, running past her car at a very high velocity rate, and she heard four popping sounds. She never saw, she saw anyone get shot. Um, she just identified the shooter with a tam on the top of his head that she said she knew the face from the neighborhood. Andre was left with so many unanswered questions. How and why was he being identified as the shooter when he knew he didn't shoot those kids? Why would Stephanie say she saw him at the crime scene brandishing a gun when he wasn't there? And there was another issue, a big one. At the time that the crime had occurred, Andre was recovering from being shot in the leg himself. He was injured very badly and couldn't have been running after anyone. Next week, you will hear the sequence of events that took place after Andre's arrest, the shocking story of how his life was derailed and how easily it can happen to anyone.